The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. As many of you know, well, I'm assuming many of you know, maybe as some of you know, I grew up as the son of a mechanic. I grew up in the small business of auto repair, and uh, my dad was, he started his auto repair business in, back in 1956 with his dad. And over the last six, six dec- decades, he's done really well, and the business has done well, and the Lord has blessed. And, and once I was old enough to work, uh, my dad started me at the workbench tearing down transmissions. And you do that in order to save the case, to rebuild another transmission, and take all the salvageable parts. And, uh, and that, was, that was fun. I started doing that in seventh grade. And then I was promoted to cleanup guy and parts runner, and I did that through high school. And then in college, and a little bit in high school, but in college, I was then promoted again, and I got to work at the front desk and work with customers and run invoices and basically do whatever else I was told. Uh, needless to say, during those years, I didn't learn a whole lot about cars. I know that sounds strange, but I, my interests lay elsewhere, and it was no fault to anybody. It wasn't my dad's fault. It wasn't my brother-in-law's fault. He was the general manager at the time. It wasn't any of the employees' fault. It was, I just, my interests lay elsewhere. I wasn't really into cars. I didn't learn a whole lot about cars. I didn't care to, and I didn't learn it by osmosis. The job was a means to an end, and I did it, but nevertheless didn't learn a whole lot. However, there is one thing I do know about cars, and it's this. In a gas-powered vehicle, without the engine, the car's not going anywhere. I, I got that down. You could have a beautiful limited edition 70 year anniversary Chevy Corvette Z06. Anybody interested? With carbon wheels, carbon spoiler, carbon ceramic brakes, and a Bose Premium 10 speaker sound system. And without the engine, it, none of that really matters, does it? Without that 5.5 liter, 760 horsepower V8, it doesn't matter what else you have in that car. And if I told you to get into the car and put on your seatbelt, strap in, and get ready to put your foot in it and get its 0 to 60 time, you would look at me with some frustration. By the way, the 0 to 60 time is 2.8 seconds in that vehicle, which is, that's for another sermon, I guess. Sorry, 2.6 seconds. Wow. All right. Uh, But it doesn't matter how much I plead with you. It doesn't matter how much I cajole or yell or exhort or command you to run that beautiful sports car up. 280 northbound, none of that matters. You couldn't do anything about it. I could command you. I could exhort you. I could yell at you. I could tell you to put your foot in it. Take that thing up to 60. Take that thing up to 140, and you just look at me helpless. I can't do that. You couldn't move until someone dropped dropped an engine into that Z06, right? Well, under the old covenant, Israel was given a car and told to drive but they weren't given an engine. The new covenant is the engine. Last week, we looked at five reasons why Jesus' high priesthood is better than the Levitical and uh, Levitical priesthood. And today, we're going to consider five reasons why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And one of the most important reasons is that in the new covenant, God gives his people a heart to obey. That is key, that is essential to the new covenant. That is one of the primary reasons why it is superior to the old covenant. So today we are going to look at five reasons why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Five reasons. We're going to start with this first one. You can look on your outlines. The first one is the new covenant is reality, not shadow. 
First reason why the new covenant is better than the old covenant is because the new covenant is reality, not shadow. The author begins this way in our section. He says, now the point of what we are saying is this. I love that. That's such a helpful introductory word, isn't it? He, kinda, he probably knows that the argument he's been giving is kind of dense and theologically thorough up to this point. He just wants to get everybody on the same page. All right. The point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. That Melchizedek priesthood that we are talking about, who is superior to the Levitical priests, that priest that we're talking about, that's Jesus. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. That priest who is innocent and undefiled and holy and exalted to the heavens. We have that high priest, and his name is Jesus Christ. So no confusion there. The point that we are making is that very point. And his exaltation to heaven is highly significant. Jesus' present location is, is, is very important. It says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There's two reasons why that's important. The first reason we've already talked about in past messages. Jesus is seated, which means his work as a priest is done. You could have never said that about the Levitical priests. They were always, as it were, on their feet. Because there was always work to be done. There was always animals to be slaughtered. There's always sacrifices that had to be completed. So I could never sit down as a Levitical priest. As soon as I sat down to get some rest, somebody would be like, nope, back up, get, get to work, time to sacrifice another animal. But Jesus is seated. The work is done. But he's also seated where? He's, at, he's seated at God's right hand. Which means he's not only a priest, he's also king. He is our priest king. He's our Psalm 110 Melchizedekian priest king. But the author also wants to emphasize something else with his location. Verse 2, he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The son who is sitting at God's right hand is a minister in the holy places. Jesus, our high priest, he does not conduct his ministry in an earthly temple. He conducts it, as it were, in a heavenly temple. He ministers in the real holy places. And we're going to mark that word real because it's vital to his argument. Everything that was in the Old Covenant was a mere picture. We'll get that to that in a moment. But Jesus' location is significant because our priest is in God's actual presence in heaven. He's a high priest in a heavenly temple. And, I, and I, when he uses the language here that says that the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. I, I don't take this to mean that there's an actual temple in heaven that God constructed for him to dwell in. I believe this is figurative language. And, and one of the reasons I believe that is because 1 Kings 8.27 says this, Solomon, after the dedication of the physical temple, actually stood back and, and was a little uh, incredulous, thinking even this temple's not going to work. He says this, he says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built." So I believe here the contrast is simply between Jesus Christ being in heaven and God's actual presence rather than here on earth in an actual physical temple. I don't think that God has actually set up a tent in heaven or a tabernacle in heaven. No, the point is, is that no physical structure can, can handle, can fit the Ancient of Days because he is infinite. But the point is that Jesus' sacrifice and his covenant is superior because he has taken that final sacrifice into God's very presence. It's not in some physical temple now or for some physical 
uh, tabernacle. The old covenant priests could never claim such a thing. The presence in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, God did dwell there, but he dwelt there in more of a symbolic sense than he did in a real sense because God cannot be contained in terms of his presence. So the high priest could never truly claim that he was taking a sacrifice into God's very presence for that would have required him to go into heaven. As we'll see, the Levitical priesthood and the Old Covenant sacrificial system was a picture, an earthly representation of heavenly realities. The Old Covenant and everything that was entailed and included in that Old Covenant in the sacrificial system, that was a mere picture and a representation of heavenly realities. That's why he says, In the next verse, he says, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it was necessary for this priest, our Melchizedekian priest, Jesus, to have something to offer. So in the old covenant system, high priests and the Levitical priests, they needed something to offer. That was just the way it worked. You had to have some sort of sacrifice to offer. That is the way that that atonement happened in Israel. So if we are going to have a high priest, he is going to need something to offer. And as we've already seen, and as we will see in chapters 10, 9, and 10, he is going to offer himself as the sacrifice. But what the author is showing is that Jesus' offering is in relation to the Levitical priest's offering in order to demonstrate that Jesus fulfills that ministry. They needed something to offer He needs something to offer. Now he offers the perfect uh, sacrifice, thus fulfilling that old covenant system. Then he goes on in verse 4 to say something quite astounding. Verse 4, he says, Now if he, that's Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. The book of Hebrews is written before the destruction of the temple. And so at this time, there were presently priest making sacrifices at the temple as he's writing this very letter. And his argument is that if Jesus were here here on earth, he would not be a priest at all because he doesn't come in the line of the Levitical priesthood. He's not qualified, as it were, at least according to the law. He's not qualified to be a Levitical priest. So if he were here on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, like those who are currently offering sacrifices. What they serve, in verse 5, is a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. They don't serve the real thing. So if Jesus were here serving in that capacity, he would not be a priest at all. His high priesthood requires that he go into heaven and offer the sacrifice there in God's very presence. As it is, these Levitical priests, they only serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. That's a very important phrase a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. That temple in heaven, that's the reality. This temple here on earth, that's just a mere shadow. The tabernacle that Moses built and the temple that Solomon built and the second temple that Zerubbabel built were all pictures of spiritual realities. Verse 6, or I'm sorry, Uh, uh, the latter part of verse 5, it says, for when Moses was about to erect the tent or erect the tabernacle, remember after he was given instructions when God had revealed all these things to him, it's God saying, 
Quote, see that you make everything according to the pattern that is shown to you on the mountain. So if this tabernacle that Moses was supposed to build for the sake of Israel's worship, if it was patterned after something else, then it can't be that something else. It is a mere representation of what was to be represented in that tabernacle. He was shown a pattern, not the real thing. He was to build a representation, not the real thing. If the tabernacle was based on something else, then the tabernacle itself was not the thing it represented. It was a copy and a shadow. So again, the author is making the point here. He's been making it for the last several chapters. It would be foolish in the extreme to think that you can go from reality back to shadow. By going back to the old covenant, from the new covenant, you're going from reality to shadow, reality to copy, reality to representation. The old covenant and its sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood were given to point Israel to something better, something greater. It was not an end in and of itself. It was meant to point to, towards a new covenant with a new high priest. And, and how can we illustrate this? Well, I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about a, a fiancé, okay? And he's at home, and he's waiting for his fiancé to get back for, from a two-month trip, okay? And he's got a nice picture of her on his nightstand. It's, it's a beautiful picture. She's a beautiful woman, and it's a beautiful picture. And he rolls over each night, and he just stares at that picture longingly, waiting for her to, to come back. Oh, when is she coming back? I can't live another minute, right? And he looks at the picture, and the picture's good. Nothing wrong with the picture. It's a beautiful picture. And it represents the woman he loves. And she's on her way back, and he can't wait till she gets back. And so this picture is going to suffice. Well, here comes the day she's coming back. And the plan, when she gets back, is to get together, little hug, little kiss, little reunion, right? And then go on a date in downtown Los Gatos. Amen? All right, well, I like, we like downtown Los Gatos. And that's the plan. Well, here comes the fiance. Here she comes to the door, and she knocks on the door. And it doesn't open right away. And she's like, well, what's going on? And he calls out from behind the door, and he says, Honey, we're not going on the date. I don't want to go on the date. I am just going to sit in the house and stare at your picture all day long. Now, she's not going to be enthused. She's not going to conclude, boy, he must love me. The passion with which he loves me, it is unparalleled. Right? That's not going to be her conclusion. Her conclusion will probably be frustration and anger because that's not what pictures are for once the real thing has arrived. Now that she is here, open up the door and get rid of it. You don't need the picture anymore. It was fine while she was gone, but you don't need it now. If you two are going to be forever together from that point on, you don't need the picture. And if you remain with the picture and shut her out, the response isn't going to be joy over your unparalleled love. It will be anger at your folly. I'm here. I'm the real thing. Put away the picture. That's exactly what's going on with this temptation to go back to the old covenant. 
The old covenant and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system, they were a picture of the real thing. The real thing is here in Jesus, put away the picture. To remain tethered to the picture, to fawn over the picture, to love the picture is to dishonor the real thing. And so that is what the author is trying to get across to these uh, Jewish Christians, and which is why he says such a strong statement that these priests were serving a mere copy or shadow of the real thing. But now in verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant because his covenant that he mediates is better. Why? Since it's enacted on better promises. So now he's going to walk us through a text from Jeremiah chapter 31 where he's going to give us Four more reasons why the covenant, the new covenant is better. The first one is because it's real. It's not just a picture. The second one is that it cannot be broken. Cannot be broken. So let us follow his argument here. He's, he says that Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent because the covenant he mediates is excellent. Why? Because it's founded on better promises. And we're going to discover those promises here in verses 8 through 12. He says, verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so what the the Jewish readers should have concluded as they're working their way through the Old Testament is that, okay, here's the old covenant. Now Jeremiah is talking about a new covenant. Hmm, something must be wrong with the previous covenant. What is it? Jeremiah is going to tell us. But he first says in verse 8, the author of Hebrews tells us, for he finds fault with them. So right before he's going to quote this Old Testament text that is a prophecy of the new covenant, he says, for he finds fault with them. And this is a highly significant statement because ultimately the fault for Israel's rebellion cannot be laid at God's feet. Can't be laid at God's feet. The problem was with Israel with their hearts. The problem wasn't with ultimately with God. The problem was with their hearts and their inability to obey God's covenant. They repeatedly broke God's covenant. He revealed himself to them. He gave them the means by which to fellowship them and he gave them promises. But throughout their entire history, they broke God's covenant over and over. So he finds fault with them. The covenant said that Israel couldn't have any other gods before the Lord, but they were awash in idolatry from the very get-go, weren't they? Their relationships were supposed to reflect kindness and justice and fairness and love and equity within the, the nation of Israel, but they repeatedly dealt treacherously with one another. Israel was full of divorce and murder and oppression. The covenant said Israel's religious devotion and worship was to be pure and sincere, but Read Isaiah 58, it was full of religious hypocrisy, oppressing your neighbor during the week and coming in on the weekend and and praising the Lord like nothing happened. Divorcing your wife during the week and coming in and worshiping the Lord on the weekend like nothing happened. That was Israel. Treachery and rebellion. So ultimately, it wasn't God's fault. It was their fault. They they did not obey the, the law. They did not want to obey the law, as we'll see. But God's going to do something amazing. In verse 8, it says he finds fault with them, but he doesn't leave it there. It said, 
Now, this is quoting Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 9, notice the contrast. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that, that I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So the contrast he's making here is very clearly, it's the, it's the covenant that he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. What covenant is that? It's the Mosaic covenant. It's the Sinai covenant. It's the old covenant as we know it now. This new covenant, it won't be like that old covenant. How will it be different Well, the next verse gives us a clue. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them. The author of Hebrews is using the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And uh, the Hebrew uh, of Jeremiah says it like this, my covenant which they broke. Now, the words they did not continue in my covenant, they capture the same thing. But I want us to hear the the Hebrew, that the, the issues that they broke God's covenant. So the implication is, if this is going to be different, one of the most important differences is what? You can't break this one. You could break the old covenant. In fact, Israel did time and again, which is why they got exiled and disciplined through their entire history. But the new covenant is different at this very specific point. It can't be broken. It can't be, let that just sit with you for a minute. You can't break the new covenant. If you are a participant in the new covenant, if you have experienced that heart change that he's going to talk about in a little bit, you can't break the covenant like Israel could. And this truth is essential for the assurance of your salvation. The new covenant can't be broken. The old covenant could You can't walk away from the living God and experience his divine wrath if you've been a participant in the new covenant. That can't happen to you. That's one of the reasons why I argue that against the idea that the warnings in the book of Hebrews indicate that you can lose your salvation. If you argue that way, you clearly don't understand the new covenant because the new covenant is different from the old covenant precisely because you can't break it. And we would just be awash in a lack of assurance of our salvation if you thought you could break the covenant. Because if there's an opportunity to break the covenant, I'm going to break it, right? Because I'm a sinner. And yet that's precisely what God does in the new covenant is he gives you a heart to obey. And this is what the New Testament calls regeneration or being born again. Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Why? Because you need a heart to obey. There needs to be a deep heart change in the person. And once that happens and they're saved and they're brought into the new covenant, that regeneration cannot be reversed and it cannot be annulled. It cannot be changed. That is absolutely vital for your assurance and for my assurance. If you are a participant in the new covenant, you can't break it. Is that wonderful or what? That's wonderful. And Jeremiah is going to address this heart change that we just talked about in this next verse. That's verse 10 now. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their minds and I'll write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How can God ensure that his people will continue in his covenant and not break it? How can he ensure that? Because it clearly wasn't the case with Israel under the old covenant. They were breaking it all over the place. How will he ensure that his people now under the new covenant will not break his covenant? Well, the law in Israel, it was always outside of the person. As Paul tells us elsewhere, is written on stone tablets. It wasn't written on human hearts. It was written on stone tablets. And therefore, it would tell you to do something whether you had any inclination to do it or not. And because you're a sinner, guess what? You didn't have inclination to do it. It's like the stubborn, rebellious teenager who you tell to go clean in his room and he digs in his heels because he doesn't want to do it. He has zero inclination to go do it. That was Israel on a grand scale. They had no inclination inwardly to do what the law said, and yet the law kept coming, do this, do this, do this. Why? Because it was on the outside of them. It was external to them. And it required perfect obedience on top of that. So not only would it command you, whether regardless of what inclination you had to obey, but it required you to obey it perfectly. And if you didn't obey it perfectly, you were liable to God's judgment, which is precisely why God brought in, in his grace, the sacrificial system, so that you could have fellowship with the holy God who demanded and required perfect obedience. And so... God's commandments to Israel in the Old Covenant made demands on them that they were internally, that is, in their heart, unable to obey. And that's why God told Israel to circumcise their hearts. He told them to do something about it. This, this is, this is mind-bending. So you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read you uh, an excerpt out of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Okay, this is back, we're bowing back in the Old Covenant. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. And God says this to Israel. This will kind of help, help us sum up what he was requiring of them. He says in Deuteronomy 10, he says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose your, their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are to this day. So there's the requirement. There's the standard. Love, the God, love God perfectly. Love him completely. Fear him. Do all that he says. Walk in his ways. Serve him with your whole heart and your whole soul. Keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. There was the command. It was on the outside of them. It was written on stone tablets. But there was a problem. The problem was that they were stubborn. They had stubborn hearts. And that right there should explain the rest of the history of Israel for you. All you need to know is that they had stubborn hearts. The law said this, and their heart said, nope. The law said this, and their heart said, no, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. And if they did do it, as we see in other passages, it just led to gross hypocrisy, just an outward form So what does God tell them? Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 10. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. In other words, 
change your heart. Change your heart, Israel. And guess what? That's not a relief either. God's telling them, change the root problem to your stubbornness. And they're saying, I can't do that either. So not only have you laid the burden of law-keeping on me, now you've laid the burden of heart change on me. And you're just trapped. What do you do? Well, you can't do anything, actually, as it turns out. God required Israel to keep his commandments always to to fulfill perfect love for God and perfect love for neighbor. They needed a radical heart change to even have any inclination to do that. And then God lays upon them the burden of that heart change. Why? To, to, To just burden them? No. To show them how desperate they were for God. And he didn't leave them to their own resources, thankfully. Actually, we get a preview of the coming new covenant here in Deuteronomy. Deut- we, just, we just looked at Deuteronomy 10. Now we can go over to Deuteronomy 30. Listen to this now. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, you got anticipated that the curses were coming, <laughs> which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And you're thinking, well, wait a second, how is that even possible? Because we just found out that they can't keep the law with all their heart and soul. Verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So not even within 20 chapters, God relieves the burden of their need to enact their own heart change. I'll do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to do the radical heart surgery so that, why? so that you may love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and that you may live. God's going to do it. And where is he going to do it? He's going to do it in the new covenant. The new covenant is a covenant of divine heart change so that the worshiper, the sinner's heart is changed to now actually have an inclination and a desire to obey. I mean, in my conversion, this was so astounding to me. There are even times when I was like, what is happening to me? What is going on? Not because I was trying to conform to some sort of outward ideal. It's because from the heart, I now wanted to obey. That's the new covenant. It changes everything, doesn't it? God is going to do what they could not do by changing their hearts. So Deuteronomy 30 is actually anticipating Jeremiah 31. And he says it, I will put my laws into their minds. Now back to Hebrews. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. 
And for that reason, now they will not drift away from God. They will not break the covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will obey from the heart, not merely from external compulsion. And this heart change can't be reversed or annulled. If your heart has been changed, if you're a participant of the new covenant, your heart has been changed forever and you will not break covenant with your creator. That's glorious. Let me ask you, why would you even ponder going back to the old covenant? Well, that should answer itself. The next reason why the old the new covenant is superior to the old is because the new covenant community is pure. That's verse 11. The new covenant community is pure. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. What's going on here? Well, in Israel, you had what's called a mixed community. The whole nation was under the the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. The The whole nation was under the Mosaic Covenant. It didn't matter who you were. If you were a Jew, you lived in the nation of Israel, you were under the Old Covenant. And you could be a believer in Yahweh or you could be an unbeliever. But you were under the Old Covenant. And therefore, it was a mixed community. You had a community of both people who believed in Yahweh and those who didn't. So, you're living next to your neighbor, and you're loving the Lord, and you're, you're seeking to be faithful to him, and you're believing his, his word and his promises. And this guy over here, he's clearly not. He's playing the hypocrite. He's not obeying the, the Lord. He's not even worried about sacrifices or any of those things. And you're like, I don't think he knows Yahweh. And so you go knock on his door, and you'd be... You come in and you say, know the Lord. Well, you'd say more than that, but you'd say, that, that would be the point, right? You need to know the Lord. So there'd be evangelism within the covenant community because it was a mixed community. Everybody was under the covenant, but not everybody knew the Lord. So you need to evangelize. Under the new covenant, it's completely different in that way. The participants of the new covenant are believers by definition. You can't be a member of the new covenant unless you're a believer. To be a member of the new covenant means that you are a believer and vice versa. You've been born again. Therefore, the new covenant community, the church, that's what the church is. The church is the new covenant community. That community's membership should reflect accurately the new covenant, meaning that you only allow believers into that new covenant community, which is why here at CBC, membership, when we go take you through membership, what we're trying to discern, are you a believer? Are you born again? And we do our best. We can't, we can't know with absolute certainty because God hasn't allowed us x-ray vision into your heart, but we, we, we hear your profession of faith and your testimony. You're like, we're pretty confident this person's a believer because we want this church community to, ref- to reflect the new covenant. So within the new covenant church membership community, there doesn't need to be any evangelism. Right? We just have fellowship. That's all we have. Fellowship. Not evangelism, just fellowship. There's no need for evangelism. Evangelism is for those who are outside, unbelievers. And it is also for those who appear to be part of the new covenant, but who have now shown through their unbelief that they are not. Now we evangelize them. It's not as though they were part of the new covenant and then they left the new covenant and broke it. No, what it demonstrates is that by leaving, they were never part of that unbreakable new covenant. So there doesn't need to be any evangelism within the new covenant community, just fellowship. Is that great? So, so when we have members over to our house, you know, 
uh, to have a meal with us, we're not asking them ten reasons why they should, ten reasons why we should be confident that they're a believer. We're not talking about that stuff. We're just having fellowship because there doesn't need to be evangelism now. If you're in the new covenant, you are a believer by definition. That was different in the old covenant. Well, another reason and the final reason we'll give today why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant is because the new covenant provides complete forgiveness of sin. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. You could never say such a thing under the old covenant because those sacrificial lambs and animals were not sufficient to atone for sin. They were only animals. And so they had to be constantly, constant repetition over and over and over to deal with the, the sins of the people, which were happening over and over and over. But now that Jesus has come, and this will now be the chapters 9 and 10. Chapters 9 and 10 will really basically give, be an exposition of the verses that we've looked here in Jeremiah. It will explain to us how Jesus has given a once-for-all sacrifice so that God's forgiveness of our sins is complete and final and never to be revoked. Wonder of wonders, this new covenant provides a way for sin to go away forever. Why? Well, that's the subject of chapters 9 through 10. Christ has provided a once-for-all sacrifice so that our sin can be removed from our record at the moment we believe in Christ. Show me a better faith in the world. Show me. You can't. So over the next two chapters, we're going to have the privilege of, of, of the author of Hebrews actually expositing in, in, in significant ways this passage from Jeremiah. One thing I want to point out that's incredibly interesting is you have Jeremiah, which is written several centuries after the founding of the Mosaic Covenant. We have a discussion of Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis 14, which was several centuries before the Old Covenant. So in the chronology of redemptive history, you have the Old Covenant flanked on both sides with texts that are telling you it's insufficient. It's temporary. And it's meant to lead you into this new covenant so that you will experience the heart change that you need in order to obey the Lord and not break his commandment. So we've seen that Jesus' new covenant is superior to the old covenant because it's reality, not shadow. It can't be broken. It's superior because God will change the hearts of his people. It, the covenant community will be pure. And lastly, it will provide final forgiveness of sin. So those of us who have been, men, been made members of the new covenant, I'm not, I didn't say been made members of CBC. I've said been men, made members of the new covenant. You could be here today as a visitor and not a member of this new covenant community and still be a member of the new covenant. And if you need a place, a new covenant community, we'd love to be that place for you. But if you've been made a member of the new covenant community by Christ's work on the cross and that's in the Spirit's gracious work of regeneration, then, then let us recognize the importance of leaning upon the Lord for that constant renewal of our hearts so that we may continue to walk consistently in accord with the new covenant. 
One thing this has taught me and reminded me of this this week is, is, is as I've reflected on the nature of the new covenant and how it's inward and how it's heart, it's at a heart level, is that I need constantly God's spirit to be renewing my heart so that I'm not tempted to walk in a kind of external religious hypocrisy. We need the, we need the spirits constantly. The spirit is the, is the difference in that new covenant and we need him continually. And those of you who are here today without that heart transformation that God promised in the new covenant, my exhortation from scripture to you today would be to repent and believe the gospel. Look to the only one who can change your heart to desire what he has commanded. There is only one God who can do that and he is in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is ready to pour out transformational, new covenant, spiritual regeneration upon those who look to him in desperation. So I encourage you to do that today, to trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. Let's pray and thank God for this new covenant. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise for the new covenant. One of the most important aspects of it is that you change our hearts. God, thank you. We can't change our hearts. We, that, we can never do that. We need you to do that. And in the new covenant, you do. So that now your commandments are not a burden. If you desire to keep God's do God's will and keep, keep his commandments, they're no longer a burden. It's what we desire to do, and we thank you. So, God, we pray that you can continue to renew our hearts, that we will always desire to obey, that you'd help us put sin to death. There will be frustration in this life because we walk in, we still have sinful flesh we must deal with. We have, like Paul, a desire to do what is right, and in times when we find that it's so exceedingly difficult, yet the desire is there. So we thank you for that desire in our hearts that you've put there. Please grow it. And I pray for anyone here today who's not a participant in the new covenant through faith in Jesus, that you would make them your own today, changing their hearts and saving them and forgiving their sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.